Yahoo announced a security breach affecting upwards of 1 billion user accounts. Cyber attack leaves 145 million eBay users at risk. Target announced up to 110 million customers may have had their identity and financial information compromised. Cyber security breach at Equifax could affect 143 million American consumers. And now your host, Nexus IT Group. Welcome back to the Hack Podcast. This is your host, Ben Hotailing. Today we are sitting down with David Yakobovich. David is a principal data scientist at Galvanize and the host of Humane Podcast. It's human with an AI in there. We're going to chat about artificial intelligence and its role in business, as well as the profession and use of AI in the security space. So, welcome on, David. How are you? Ben, doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, back in New York City after running some innovation projects in Monterey, Mexico for the past month or two. Very cool. It sounds fantastic. How's the weather up there? Uh, New York City, we are doing great. And uh, lots of skyscrapers are coming on live. Uh, lots of projects, including Cyber NYC. So excited awesome. to see New York in the summer. Sounds great. So let's get started just learning a little bit more about you. Love to hear about your profession, uh, you know, what's brought you to where you are today, and love to learn a little bit more about your podcast as well. Sure, absolutely. So for your listeners, you know, I got involved in data and operations for financial companies starting back in 2010, initially in the actuarial sciences. And, you know, fast forward to today, I teach a lot and offer strategic advisory for Fortune 500 companies and students getting into the fields of data science and AI. And one of the principal questions I'm always asked is, how do you make a transition from finance, from operations into a technical field. And I, I give this classic story that, you know, if you are an engineer today and you spend five hours a week studying, or you are um, already a data analyst and you spend no time studying, or you are a liberal arts marketing individual who spends 10 to 20 hours studying, the individual who puts in the most amount of time, they're going to see those results and they're going to be able to move that technical path. And I share that story because that's what I've done over the past uh, decade has evolved from being in pure finance and financial data services into running projects, uh, doing strategic advisory for those projects, um, as well as having that thought leadership. And that's led me um, to several ventures. Uh, I was chief of staff for Big Three, which is the venture with Jeff Quatnitz, uh, Ice Cube, and Roger Mason. So led technology growth and the CEO search there. Uh, also worked for General Assembly in their enterprise prior to their um, acquisition um, by um, ADECO. So helped them for growing a lot of their financial clients uh, with data and AI. And most recently with Galvanize, been in that same space, working with manufacturers, working with 3D components companies, working with financial services who really want to keep all their data uh, secure. And that inspired me to also um, get involved in the, in the AI space uh, with a podcast called Humane, uh, as you mentioned, with AI in the middle uh, that launched a few months ago and has been very focused on AI and data science education. Very cool. That sounds fantastic. Uh, so you know, New York City, obviously big financial hub, a lot going on there. And you know, with your path, I, I guess, you know, have you found that where your skill set has transitioned to 
has that opened up a lot of doors for you or, um, you know, what's your, your thoughts in an area that's so you know, dominated by you know, finance, insurance and uh, other big industry? Yeah, the story goes in New York, you know, pre 9-11, it was finance post 9-11. It's been finance. But now as we're moving into remote and distributed culture, how will finance change? We have startups like Cadre and Seed Invest and Consensus and uh, lots of other investment vehicles that have grown in the robo advisory uh, and um, distributed investing uh, platforms just in the past few years. Um, I don't think the financial industry is going to ever go away from New York. I think it's going to become even stronger and will continue to be the epicenter of the world there. Um, for someone like myself who made that transition from you know pure finance more into data, um, it's always been making sure you have enough touch points. And that means particularly being technologically relevant. Um, in finance, traditionally, those skills were Visual Basic and Excel and uh, working maybe with some Linux commands. But moving into that data space, it was getting quite strong in SQL literacy as well as Python literacy. And for anyone looking to um, increase their tech chops, whether it could be security-based um, or data science AI, I say SQL and Python are the ways to go. Fantastic. So you, was that transition challenging for you having such a strong academic and mathematical background? Were those your technologies, those languages pretty easy to pick up and apply them effectively in business? For me, the most challenging part was that I came from a theoretical background of working with mathematics and working with traditional programming languages like C-sharp to get into these other languages that have been so data-focused. The biggest challenge is putting in the time. And once you start working in the industry, you lose track of time very quickly and how much time you have available to study. Um, you know, for me, the best way I uh, managed my time was to time block on my calendar that between certain times in the morning and the evening, I would study and particularly uh, make sure that what I did in those languages were focused around business cases. Um, if I couldn't get that time outside of work, I made sure my time in work got focused on the passion I wanted to do. So particularly when I worked at ADP, I was involved in projects with both SQL and Tableau. Uh, but I really wanted to get more into predictive analytics, which was data science at the time. Uh, and so got involved in projects, you know, started proving my worth, uh, implementing features into dashboards. And as you prove your worth, your team starts to see it and they get to help you get more involved. So for me, it was uh, very much proving that uh, value add. Gotcha. Fantastic. Well, let's get things kicked off here, talking a little bit about artificial intelligence in you know, security, specifically the ethical use of artificial intelligence. Of course, not everyone is using artificial intelligence for good. It's a huge moneymaker you know, for individuals that uh, don't necessarily have your best interest at heart. So I'm curious, you know, with such a powerful tool, how would you define ethics and you know, the ethical use of artificial intelligence? Sure. So first off, what is artificial intelligence? This, uh, for the audience, would be automating a decision that a human could do or does not want to do and performing at that same level as the human or better. Um, 
one of the best examples I have for first off AI and if it could be ethical AI um, is a recent event that occurred to me a few weeks ago. So I was doing all these flights to Mexico and, you know, typically I hand my passport and my boarding pass and get approval to go on the plane. But for the first time, I took an international segment where I looked at a camera and it automatically approved me without a human. So we're starting to see now in all these airports in the U.S. with Delta, American, United, and JetBlue, where if you have a passport, the government has your photo. And they've been training on those photos, uh, computer vision, to know if you are who you really say you are. And for me, that was um, actually a pretty exciting moment. Like I personally say, government, have all my data. I want to have technologically relevant um things that can improve my life. But I also thought the same token, I said, could this be questionable? I never really gave permission to the government to do this facial recognition on my image. And I think that is the big challenge with ethics and AI is a lot of these products and companies that consumers use uh, for many years, you have this trust built with a company. And the risk is, you can lose that trust overnight. Uh, there's the truth that, for example, with this uh, flying case that, yes, you can reach out to Delta or United or American or JetBlue and say, please opt out. I'd rather you not use my face. Um, but the interesting fact for uh, our viewers is that the Homeland Security um, actually has a certain clause from the Patriot Act that gives them permission to use our images for computer vision. So this has been around since 9-11 and 2001. Uh, we may have not signed up for it, but it is the world we're living in today. You know, interesting that you can have such a, a important tool that makes life so much easier. But if you really break it down to, with your example, with those companies, uh, you know, how they're using it and how our airports are using it and Homeland Security is using it is could be scary uh, you know for some people especially if they're they're not familiar or you know maybe it becomes accessible uh, you know from someone else that doesn't have your best interest at heart it seems like that technology could you know, really have a negative impact yeah i think the negative impact would be on really two factors and one of them you stated quite um, frankly, then is accessibility. So for example, if you are someone who doesn't have a passport and then suddenly the systems go completely remote, completely automated, can you not even get on the flight anymore because of that? We've seen mm -hmm. similar cases happen with real estate in New York City just in the past couple months where landlords were converting their buildings to just use ring digital doorbells and no longer um, allow key access. And tenants who had been in the buildings for many years were concerned about this because, well, first their identity is at stake and they're being tracked and monitored by Big Brother, if you will, or these landlords. But second, um, it was without their permission, as if there was some hidden clause in their uh, lease clause that said, oh, you're now going to have to use this digital system. So I think first, accessibility is a big concern uh, for AI and its implementation. The second one is misidentifying information. So if my image was used, and yes, my image is there in the passport, but what if there's someone who looks very familiar to me in the world, uh, but they uh, perhaps are not a good person? They're a bad actor, if you will. So then would I have been flagged as someone on a no-fly zone list, and there'd be no way to change that? So I think that's the big concern. 
And we're starting to see that with other products where there's been issues popping up in 2019. Um, one major company that you know recently pulled out in New York, you know, Amazon, talk a lot about their headquarters. Well, they have been notoriously known not to hire women uh, very much. They're, it's actually more underrepresented uh, in Amazon than most companies, and they wanted to fix this. And, and so this use case is that their recruiting team set up an AI system that would scan through resumes and identify who should be interviewed and who could be the best candidates on a meritocratous base to improve hiring practices and staffing at Amazon. And well, this process was implemented in late 2018 and very quickly after it was pulled from the shelves because somehow it was excluding all women from the interview process. It was a closed loop AI system and that's so weird, right? Yeah, that's so odd. You know, and huh. it's that was my first thought. Like, this is odd and what's going on here. And for those who, you know, don't program in AI today, you would say, What's going on? And traditionally in AI, there's there's two schools of thoughts. You have closed AI systems and open AI systems. And when you don't understand what's going on, that's a closed system. Uh, why are women being not selected for the interview process? Is it because of a name and how that's written? Is it because of you know the length of the resume? Is there, is there something else going on there? But this translates directly to the ethics in AI as well, uh, because when you're looking at different systems, such as are you flying or are you in the no-flight zone? Are you being interviewed? Are you not being interviewed? It's important that systems are open. And if they're not open, well, then they're closed. And if they're closed, then you don't know what's going on. So that trust is being eroded between consumers and enterprises. There's another challenge there. So, you know, in one regard, I think it's great to have open AI systems. You understand what's going on. It's important to know how you get hired. It's important to know how you fly. but well, what does that mean about bad actors? And from a security standpoint, I think that presents some challenges that we're starting to see this year. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you, you make a great point. It seems like systems that make decisions or can be you know, exclusive, if you will, there, there's some innate challenges there, right? Decisions that are impacting humans that are, you know, machines or, or um, you know, programs, it, it's it's just a very interesting thought exercise to you know, what would somebody think if, you know, no, you weren't excluded by a human, but you were excluded by a piece of technology that you know, humans have touched. Um, so it, it just kind of, it, it's very interesting you know, thought process of, of going on about that. I couldn't imagine being one of those individuals that, you know, did submit a resume and, and could be a very good candidate for a role, but you know, you come to find out, oh well, our system kicked you out. You know, what does that really mean? How, how do you feel about that, and what do you take away from it? It's very interesting, and I can definitely see how that you know, can be an ethical dilemma you know, moving forward for the business, you know, like Amazon, in that situation, and also the individuals that are creating that technology. What level do they need to have responsibility for the decisions that their tools are making? Yeah, in 2019, where we're at today is less than 38% of Fortune 500 companies have AI adoption. Most companies are beginning to push AI into development and soon production, but the ones that release into production often do it 
too soon. And that's what creates the backlash with the consumer. The consumers are generally okay with automation. If it's going to make my bill cheaper and it's going to improve the quality of service and reduce mistakes, why not? Let's implement AI. But you bring in classic examples of companies where they push it out too quick, and then that results in missed opportunities. Um, one example that um, is a personal one that I experienced this year was with Sprint. So Sprint is the mobile carrier that I have my cellular service on. And well, what happened is I was being mischarged. And so I had this mispricing and attempted to connect with human customer service agents at offshore centers. And once all that communication happened and, and speaking with their teams, um, there was no resolution possible. And ultimately, automatically, because of the bill mistakes, um, my account was flagged. My account was flagged as one that was not making payments, that had these issues going on, and there was no human I could connect to to resolve this. As much as I tried to connect with managers and, and escalate, I felt that I was a cog in the wheel because, in essence, AI was to blame. Now, if we break down AI from its buzzword, what is it really? It's, as you said earlier, Ben, it's making decisions. It's basically this yes-no system. So has a payment been made on time? Yes, okay, keep letting them use the service. No, okay, flag the account for termination. And the challenge is there was no human intervention loop uh, provided uh, to, to change the decision. And that only decision that existed was for me to go above and beyond the company. And, and that's where it gets interesting in that, you know, countries like the USA do have protections for consumers. Countries like China uh, do not. So what I did in this situation is I contacted the Federal Communication Commission, the FTC, the CFPB, and 24 hours later, you know, officials at Sprint were on the phone with me uh, helping resolve the situation. But it, it begs the question that, is too much automation not good for society if it can't be implemented properly? What is that line? How do we draw that line? Is that line able to be regulated? And, and you know, should there be you know, large-scale fines or, or something like that that holds you know, organizations, firms, users of this technology, creators of this technology uh, at a higher standard, you know, in your specific situation, a lot of time spent, you know, on the phone with Sprint and a lot of frustration. What does that value? Um, you know, and, and what does that mean for Sprint and their technology moving forward? It, it's a really interesting conversation to to have. I, I guess you know, from a governance side, from a uh, regulation side, you know, where do you see potential? governing bodies stepping in to you know, set the tone you know, with the use of AI in business. Yeah, so there's a lot of commissions and reports that have been coming out in 2019. Uh, one, the European Commission on AI and Ethics was established. They made a 70-page-plus report talking about whether the golden practices and the rules of thumbs to set up proper AI systems. And this is all on the back of GDPR. So back in 2018, you know, Europe, uh, as the whole Shenzhen bloc, uh, passed the GDPR regulation, which now can fine companies, but it's only finding them on data regulation and data collection and using data against uh, consumers' wills. But it's not about the AI piece yet. So I think we're going to see more regulation there. 
Uh, most recently, Facebook got uh, slapped with a 4 billion euro fine uh, just for their misuse of data around Cambridge Analytica. And uh, you know what happened right after that fine occurred? Facebook stock soared on the New York Stock Exchange because shareholders thought they were going to get a much bigger fine. So this does beg the question, like you mentioned then, you know, will fines help um, or do the fines have to be of a certain size? Um, I don't think fines are going to solve uh, the issue. I think they are going to create awareness around there. But as companies are becoming more global, it just means that companies have bigger pocketbooks and bigger legal teams to work on those issues. Um, another classic example was uh, Monsanto. Monsanto, the big uh, seed production company for farmers all over the world um, in partnership with Bayer. Uh, so they have this product called uh, Roundup, right, which is used for pesticides and controlling weeds in all these farms, uh, but there was never full disclosure around the product and whether it would have harmful health uh, effects on humans. And it's been shown recently that perhaps this is true, that there's harmful health uh, effects. And, and so in California, there were fines upwards of a billion dollars on a family of two people slapped by the judge to say, we want to send you a lesson. But again, what does that lesson mean when you have a company like Monsanto making um, hundreds of billions of dollars a year? So I think it goes beyond fines. Um, I think it requires public advocacy. Uh, I think the public advocacy is standing up for what's right and being aware of your rights um, and sending messages to companies. Uh, in fact, you know, I launched in uh, uh, beginning of 2019 the Humane podcast, and we have our next venture coming out called the Humane Accords, which is setting up uh, the same ethical guidelines that Europe is talking about, but for the United States. We're starting to have conversations with the IEEE, with the World Economic Forum, to say, Look, I, I applaud what Europe's doing, but the whole world has to uh, move forward and unite on this process. And hopefully Humane Accords will be part of uh, sharing that dialogue and conversations in the USA. Sure. That sounds fantastic. I hope that really comes to a head and make a significant difference in that, that space. It's great. So naturally, not everybody cares about being entirely ethical <laughs> with what they're doing with technology. And a lot of criminal activity is... You know, happening as we speak right now. So what have you seen, what have you identified as some ways that uh, you know, criminals are using artificial intelligence and going beyond uh, lack of ethical judgment and uh, you're moving into a, a way to make money illegally with technology? Yeah, so this is super interesting in the sense of the financial realm. Uh, in the financial realm, a uh, very recent development is that you can no longer give anyone a personal check. This actually broke the internet a few days ago um, in May 2019, that when you give a personal check, if a hacker gets your check, they can use those numbers on your account to actually create a fake debit card and withdraw all the funds from your account. So that's yeah. something that's happening out now. Um, and by just using computer vision, you're able to take those check numbers that might be occurring in emails in unsecured gateways um, and, and doing that. So hackers are getting in that way. Um, uh, fortunately, checks are no longer a big uh, modem of, of currency transaction. Uh, another one that's really big that we've seen, the second one I'd like to touch on is deep fakes. Deep fakes is this whole topic of creating fake images and fake videos um, that never really happened. Uh, 
Uh, the classic uh, example is from October 2018 when Jordan Peele, who is an actor uh, and also a commentator for NBC and BuzzFeed, uh, came out with a video where he superimposed his lips and his voice on Barack Obama's State of the Union presentation. So he superimposed it and uh, to have fun with it, you know, he said some profanity and vulgar words and things that you would never think Barack Obama would say in open doors. Um, but it was quite incredible because it seemed so realistic. Um, to fast forward to May 2019, uh, just this past week, some researchers were able to take Joe Rogan, who's one of the top podcasters in the world and uh, in business, they were able to take his voice from all his public YouTube videos and podcast videos and almost perfectly replicate his voice. So now if someone wanted to put out a fake audio of Joe Rogan endorsing a product, they can do that. Imagine the future of commercials and advertisements when you don't really know if it's being endorsed by a certain person. In fact, mm. I think a branch of AI that's going to become really bad in the next couple of years is where you're going to have a phone call with someone and you're not even going to know if the phone call you're talking to is the person. How do I know I'm really talking to Ben right now? How do I know I'm not talking to someone else who's in India, right? Mm -hmm. Or in Kenya. And, and I don't know. And I think there will need to be certain security authentication services um, to help mitigate that. So that's so that's so interesting. You know, being able to create fake videos and fake messaging it can be used as a, a way of social engineering. And now you're taking away the skill that's required to be a successful so, a social engineer. Um, and just moving it on to technology. If you're a little bit creative and have some technical skills, all of a sudden you could be uh, really getting into people's minds, really rubbing off on them and, and using that as a tool to get them to do what you want and manipulate people. So that's really scary. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is predominantly in the United States, there's not that much regulation around technology. Um, in Europe with the GDPR, uh, there needs to be so much full disclosure on every product. When you have an advertisement of a woman who is wearing a Chanel bag in Paris and she looks quite skinny, there needs to be an ad uh, placement that says who this actress is, if this actress is paid, um, you know, what are the different brands part of that. Um, traditionally, products on Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook in the U.S. never had disclosure if it was an ad or not an ad. Um, and that you know, went uh, really as a big issue back in summer 2018 with the Fire Festival, for those who remember how that became a, an, an internet sensation of a scam where, you know, rich kids were able, were able to take images and doctor videos to make a amazing festival seem possible in Grand Exuma in the Bahamas off um, the United States, when in fact none of it was real and it was all playing off our senses and doing this social engineering or social arbitrage, as you, as you mentioned. Um, I, I always like to give a third example. We've talked here about um, the personal checks and how money can get spoofed. We've talked about the deep fakes and how audio and video can get spoofed. But I think a third uh, classic example that's been really interesting is self-driving cars. So this is something that, you know, everyone's hearing about Uber, Lyft, Google, Ford. Everyone's trying to get in on the self-driving 
phenomenon before it takes over driving in the US and around the world. But one of the interesting points is Tesla, who's been known to be very focused on the space, uh, sent an announcement just in April 2019 that uh, starting in 2020, all Tesla cars out of the box will be available to be self-driving taxis. So the technology is ready. Um, we, you can start driving to work without your hands, you know, enjoy your breakfast in your car, have a meeting with your, your colleague. And so a lot of people applauded Tesla's decision. But on the other side, a big uh, thought came up. Some researchers said, I wonder if Tesla's vehicles are really ready. And so what these researchers did is they took QR codes and other stickers and embedded them with pixels and information that to the human eye looked like nothing, looked like a, a band's uh, sticker um, or just a QR code for renting an apartment and placed them on stop signs throughout Silicon Valley. And these stop signs, in fact, with the metadata embedded in these QR codes and stickers now read as go forward at 45 miles per hour. And lo and behold, you had several Tesla cars that um, had incidences, including one that had a crash as a result of that. So this, in essence, it seems like a fun prank, but it could be also bad actors. What if on the highway, speed limit signs are no longer 65 miles per hour, but some bad actors change them all to be 100 and 150 miles per hour, and then suddenly cars are zooming by and running into accidents. I think there's a lot of issues going to happen, and I think something in regulation is going to have to change uh, to protect consumer rights. Very interesting. Did not realize that was happening at that level with the the self-driving vehicles. Sounds like we're a lot further away than some might hope in that respect. Definitely me. I, I could go never driving again and be totally okay with it. So hopefully we can get that figured out. But now one, one bit of technology that I think is extremely important, extremely helpful and useful, good way to connect consumers on a deeper level with organizations and products and services and provide better customer services, robots, bots. And it seems like in the last year, two years, it's been talked about a lot more. Seems like the concept of bots and, and to look out and identify, you know, look out for and identify bots has become you know, more well known recently. My my mother knows, you know, look out for bots. There are things out there that are talking to you that are not real. So um, I personally think that they're extremely helpful, but I also see that there's a lot of you know, use of bots that isn't necessarily in the best use of it this time. So you know, I'd love to understand a little bit more about the evolution of bots and you know, what we can look forward to in 2020 and beyond with you know, bot technology. Yeah. So I think with bot technology, the biggest subfield in AI is called conversational AI. And this is engaging with bots in a one-on-one -on -one transaction that becomes more native as a fluent dialogue. Um, some classic examples that have just come around in the past year are one with Mattel and the Barbie doll. They actually created a Barbie doll that uh, parents could buy for their children that basically is an Alexa device. So this Barbie doll, you can talk to it and 
And as a result of your language, it will respond with pre-programmed phrases, up to a hundred of them based on what you say. So it measures the sentiment of your voice, how positive or negative that may be, um, how complicated those words are and so forth. So we're starting to have these devices that can engage with you. Um, now, we also have another type of bot that's been present, which is particularly chatbots. And those chatbots include on apps such as Facebook Messenger, uh, Kick, and other apps. And one company that's done very well with it is Nike. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I love my own pair of kicks and I, I love to customize them. And Nike is one of my favorite brands because of Nike ID, which lets you go into their stores and customize your shoes. But, you know, maybe someone does not live next to an outlet store or a retailer. So with the new Nike Facebook Messenger bot, you can customize by choosing selections in Facebook Messenger to get the perfect color and shade and design for your shoe and then make the purchase directly from Facebook. So we're starting to see these bots that are becoming smart. They're being able to read your intent. They're being able to read um, your language and to help you make decisions that drive up sales. So in two regards, I think those are both interesting products that have made a lot of progress. Um, however, there's not always a positive side to bots. So the two parts that are interesting might be robots per se, and one is physical robots. We have companies out of Silicon Valley now. Um, one is called Cafe X. It's an interesting company because it's basically a Starbucks with no humans. You go to this glass store and you choose on an iPad display what you'd like to order. And this Fanuc robot, which is this device that basically makes cars, right? But it also has um, knobs that it can actually be very gentle. So it can pick up a coffee cup, place it in a machine, grind coffee, do all those very interesting things that exists today in Silicon Valley. And uh, it's replacing human jobs. So that is one, you know, fear on the future of work is where's automation going to human jobs. So that's the first part of being human that might be a threat. And the second part about robots, I like to say as an existential threat that goes back to my story with Sprint is robocallers. How many spam calls do I get? And even yourself, Ben, and, and I, I probably have gotten thousands of them this year. I no longer pick up a call from anyone who's not in my phone, just as a nature of habit. Um, <laughs> Isn't that so silly that we can't even pick up a call? It, it really is that way. If I don't have the contact or I don't recognize the number, there's zero chance I'll be picking that up. That's right. Leave me a voicemail and then I'll listen to your voicemail. <laughs> nine out of 10 voicemails will probably still be bots, right? Yep. But, you know, it's, it's, it's how it's changed. And so I think there's legislation moving through um, in the U.S. Uh, Congress right now to help protect consumers and actually set fines and penalties and jail sentences for people who are attempting to send robo calls. You know, I think this goes back to the Digital Millennium Protection Act um, back in the early 2000s, which um, actually helped fix a lot of issues with spam emails. You might remember a day when you would get so many emails from companies like Viagra and cruise ships and all these other things. And um, now they usually hit your spam or you don't get them at all. And that's because this act was passed that if you did not double opt into emails, you can't get them or you can get seriously fined and even get jail time. And they're looking to finally, I would say, pass this, uh, this regulation in the U.S. for robocallers. So 
I think we're seeing both the positive and negative on bots. Um, I think the end of the day, what we're seeing from all these scenarios, both the Mattel and Nike, these positive scenarios, um, the conversational AI, uh, negative one with robocallers as well, is that uh, the experiences are becoming seamless and integrated, and that we can no longer often tell that a bot is a bot. You almost think there must be a human on the other side running this dialogue. And I think that's both uh, exciting and scary at the same time. Yeah, it really is. And to that point, you know, if you were to make a prediction of you know, what bot technology looks like in 2025, do you have any thoughts on where bot technology is going and you know, what type of uh, experience it would be like interacting with one? I think that any job that is repetitive mundane, a task that you can automate, um, that you can achieve the same performance as a human without them can be automated with bot technology. Uh, so that's the direction we're starting to move. By 2025, um, all types of customer service and lower level tasks are going to be automated with bots. Um, systems that we're seeing today in 2019 with Google and Apple and, and Amazon, where you're able to tell Alexa, please, you know, order me uh, paper towels on Amazon. It can already do that. Um, in fact, just a few months ago, Google had their most recent I.O. conference and revealed Google Duplex. Now, this is in 2018, 2019, around that time. And they already had a system that can talk to a hair cuttery uh, staff member or a restaurant owner and schedule restaurant appointments and schedule haircut appointments. That's in 2018, 2019. So a lot of these lower level tasks are moving away. And I think where we're moving towards is what uh, Deloitte's Human Capital Management Report uh, coined in April 2019, the future of super jobs. The jobs where we're going to perform jobs of two or three individuals from like 2008 um, with the help of machines. It's going to be very human augmented uh, experiences where the humans are going to refine these conversations and help to make it more bespoke and creative. I think with the right implementation, I think with the right testing and research, bots can help with experiences. I think, in fact, we could have better experiences when you go shopping. I would love the day where I can go into Macy's on Herald Square in New York City and be greeted by a bot on my phone or a bot in the store that will already know all my preferences and make recommendations and follow me around the store to guide me for the wholesale but then you have a human who could help out to maybe help me mix and match uh, some of the items. Uh, maybe they could help me think about the specific use case for a black tie event uh, or for a family occasion. Uh, I think that more uh, higher level thinking is where the humans will come in. And I think we're going to need to start having those conversations today so we're prepared for the future of work. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of the future of work, I really do think that there's two sides of, of the coin or two different uh, ways of thinking about it. And, and you know, one of those being, you know, look out for technology. One piece of technology knocks out you know, two jobs that a human can do. That's not good. What are we going to do? How are we going to work? Where, you know, is our, our position in society going to be? And then the other side being, you know, yes, 
these technology is, is going to take over some of those jobs. But the you know the the development and the maintenance of these tools is going to spur so many more jobs that we're just going to be transitioning what our skill set is uh, to at the end of the day, be a lot more productive as one single person. So what do you think, you know, in the place that you are and the, the role that you have talking to a lot of people about this, where do you fall on that uh, debate, if you will? Where I'm at today is I do a lot in data science and AI. And so I think there's two interesting things here that I want to note. One is to my job, it's definitely going away, right? Data scientists are moving more towards automation. Uh, they're using these new tools like AutoML, where again, the, the more mundane tasks like cleaning and prepping all the data, that's going to be automated. The more complex tasks is implementing with a business case to drive up revenue or drive down costs. I think that's the part that's going to still require the human. So there still will be data scientists and AI researchers, if you will, just in a different capacity as the job requisitions change in 2025. Now, on the notion of maintenance and how building new AI systems requires further development and refinement, I think that is true. Uh, you have drones companies now that are building uh, delivery uh, for the first time in Virginia Tech out in Blacksburg, Virginia. That's Amazon's first site where they can deliver packages by drone. This is already happening now in 2019. Uh, there's a company in San Francisco called Neuro. This is a self-driving grocery delivery company. This is live in 2019. SoftBank just put about a billion dollars into this company. These things are happening now. Um, but when you think about these drones and these self-driving cars need maintenance workers. Um, my dad, he was a TV repairman and business owner for many years, working with schematics, working with blueprints, uh, repairing televisions, VCRs, DVDs, and, and all these very exciting technology products of their times. But Individuals like him, although he's retired now, can still work in their vocational practice, but for new products. So I think a lot of the vocational skills are still going to be relevant. It's just going to now be with tools that are powered by AI, powered by data. But we're still needing these physical experiences, and they're going to offset a lot of the job loss with job creation in new industries. Um also, I think another notion is as the entire world is today, you know, our population is leveling off. You know, right now we are um, moving towards that carrying capacity and no longer increasing at the clip that used to be. So I think it is going to be finding the right balance of how many jobs should exist with how much automation should exist and what is going to be the real implementation. The truth is drones and self-driving cars, it's already here. It's here to stay. But other um, projects that might include such as building videos with images and uh, videos of um, other people, that's where regulation needs to come uh, to the table. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to have one type of society. It's either going to be the society that's occurring in China right now, where the government runs everything, or something that runs with capitalism and free market like the U.S. Um, which one will be the long-term winner? Uh, right now, perhaps there'll be space for both of us to stay. So I think we'll be seeing more of that by 2025. Sure. Very interesting. So you know, one of the major uh, you know, areas that 
a lot of companies are you know, hopefully really starting to to buy into, of course, is you know, that that responsibility piece. Of course, there's tons of regulations out there that uh, you know companies are responsible for the data that they're collecting and responsible for their customers uh, safety uh, of that data. Now, you know, with artificial intelligence being are beginning to expand and grow and get more powerful and be able to teach itself how to use the technology and, and manipulate itself based on different situations. Uh, where Where's that line at where there starts to be a little bit of blame passed on to the technology if something bad were to happen? Does that make sense? Yeah, so on a recent episode of the Humane Podcast, I, I interviewed Travis Dirks. He's he's a PhD guy who is basically building a venture that has AIs to teach AIs, right? So it's called XCore. It's it's very interesting. But the the challenge which he and I talked about on, on a recent episode, which was um Wow. Well, how much bias is coming into these systems from the humans? Mm -hmm. And if the bias is coming in, well, is it the technology to blame or is it the human to blame? Um, in fact, on a, another episode, I interviewed the former chief data scientist of Samsung. And, uh, and he and I talked about that most AI today is built by old white men. Right. Like the truth is, you know, it's it's the baby boomers in that generation who've established these systems. But you do need to increase diversity in AI. You need to have more women. You need to have um, more uh, people of different uh, ethnical backgrounds, different uh, genders, different diversity. I, I think that's super important. And to think just like when you run a marketing campaign, if you were to put an ad at the Super Bowl. And you were to talk about the new uh, Pepsi product, right? Or the new Coca-Cola product. You want to make sure it resonates with your audience and helps people feel wanted and part of the process. You don't want to create a product like Doritos, right? Doritos is a product that alienates. Every time when they have the Super Bowl ads, you either love it or hate it. Maybe it's funny or maybe it offends you. But then that's the reaction they want. With an AI, you cannot have that because you jeopardize relationships, you risk uh, trust, and at the end of the day, that's lost customers and the chance of bigger fines coming down the road. So um, my hope is that we do come to some neutral uh, terms on regulation, and I think we're going to start seeing some of those uh, coming through Congress and the Senate uh, this year and next year. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. It's such an interesting thought process. It's very easy, you know, human nature to get into defensive mode, especially when you feel like you weren't the one that uh, is directly responsible for something bad happening to someone else. Kind of got out of your hands, out of control. And then, you know, here we are, there's a bad situation with no one to point a finger at and take responsibility for it. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, us as humans, we're the ones that are creating this technology and allowing it to do what it's doing. Uh, so it's a very interesting conversation. I, I can imagine how uh, that can get really complex if some, you know, if this artificial intelligence technology uh, continues to grow at the scale that it's it's growing and then business continue to use it uh, as much as it seems like they're adapting to it you know, now. Um, you could see some really interesting situations where some people could potentially get hurt. Uh, and then, you know, what do we do? Who do we point the blame at? It's got to be ourselves. Uh, really tough to, to regulate that. I, I can imagine that'll be a, a tough exercise for Senate and other governing, governing bodies that uh, will get into those murky waters.
That's right. You know, the best AI systems require data and the data needs to be good. The data needs to be controlled and it needs to be structured so that um, everyone's coming out ahead. Uh, if people are losing as a result of these systems, um, we're no longer going to have the democracy that we see today. Uh, you know, imagine a world in 10 years where there are millions of unemployed people and there is no money from taxpayers or entities to be able to support welfare programs, to be able to support Medicare, and to be able to support systems of a better quality of life. I think we're at an inflection point today for the U.S. where for the first time, our future generation could live a better quality of life than we are today as a result of establishing automation, as a result of establishing energy independence, which we're having with solar, wind, and hydro. Um, there's a lot of sustainable uh, technologies coming to the forefront. I think AI is going to help uh, manage the costs on these technologies, uh, which will reduce bills for consumers and reduce the bills for enterprises. I think if everyone thinks for the long term, then it's a win-win and both consumers and companies are going to come out ahead. So let's close things up here with just a quick section we like to do called overrated, underrated. So I'm going to give you I just have two topics here and I want to hear what you think if the topic or the, the technology is overrated or if it's underrated. First one, overrated or underrated natural language processing. Natural language processing, completely underrated. Underrated. Okay. What is your, your reasoning behind that? Because I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's super cool. So natural language processing is understanding text, understanding sentiment. But just last week, out of a venture between Harvard, IBM, and MIT, uh, there uh, was a package uh, in, in Python that could understand if text that you wrote is plagiarized. And this came about because OpenAI, the initiative run by Sam Altman and backed by Elon Musk, um, came out with a package um, just the beginning of 2019 that could write essays as good as humans for you. They hesitated to put it on the market, but they did. And a lot of professors got uh, scared quite quickly. Um, but Harvard and MIT shot back and said, we can detect that those are fake essays. Very cool. Uh, so this next one might be a little controversial because I believe you're in process doing this right now. But uh, what is your thoughts? Is it overrated or underrated to get advanced degrees in a specialty field related to artificial intelligence, data science? So you know, PhD level initiatives. Do you think that it's necessary in today's environment or uh, do you think not so much to be successful in this space? I would say neutral. So I don't know if you've ever had that response to the question. <laughs> Um, I would say neutral because, look, uh, you could self-learn, right? And if you have the chops, you can pick up the AI and data science that you're interested in. It just depends on the outcome you're looking to achieve. I am someone who loves research, seeing things that are on the cutting edge and how those can be applied to industries. So for someone like myself, doing advanced degrees is very meaningful. Um, if you're someone who's looking to get into industry, a PhD is not what you need, right? These are usually attracted um, by people who are very intellectually stimulated by research topics. Um, mm -hmm. Boot camp space is fascinating. It teaches a lot. It helps you get your foot in the door, um, but you got to continue the learning. If you're someone who wants to be an engineer, and today you aren't, but you're ready to reskill yourself into that pathway, 
you need to have that hunger and discipline to keep learning, keep practicing, just as you would in your craft, right? If you were a mechanical engineer fixing uh, televisions and VCRs, you love your vocational career, you want to go into coding, and in your current career, you're always thinking about how to use better solder material and how to better clean and, and make sure you deliver on time. The same things with code. Constantly be improving and you'll be successful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a very interesting uh, situation situation in technology, you know, Nexus IT security group being in the you know, hiring space, we work with clients all the time that are very accepting of you know, software engineer, for example, with you know, nothing more than a high school diploma and a can-do attitude. Uh, you know, some of the, the best technologists you know, don't necessarily have the formal education that goes along with the level that they're producing at. However, in the data science space and artificial intelligence, it's becoming more and more uh, of a requirement, at least from what we're seeing, that your master's and really some doctorate level you know, candidates being the barrier of entry. And you know, I believe I actually just read an article that data science is now the highest income starting profession out there, something like 95,000 in the United States being the average starting salary in that space. But it requires however much more, many thousands of dollars more in uh, you know, getting that formal education. I thought it was kind of interesting to sit back and look at technology. And as the as technology becomes more centralized into uh, you know, a data-driven and a code-driven environment uh, you know, for technology to kind of sit back and say, we've been very accepting of individuals that can just do it. But now for these roles that require these deep mathematics, like, you know, you need to have very advanced degrees and, and you spend four additional years in college to even be considered. And the benefits there, sure, long term. Um, but I thought it was interesting to just look back and look at technology as how it's come to uh, fruition, even over just the last 20 years. And then yeah, now we're here requiring master's degrees when you have individuals like yourself that you know, came out, didn't even know this is what you're going to do, but you found a way to be successful nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I think it's super interesting because most of the boot camps today um, have gained a lot of fame on being able to deliver three-month programs. Uh, but the challenge is when you go to a four-year degree and you study IT or applied mathematics or software engineering, you're taking so many classes and you're going so in-depth into case studies and, and practice projects that you have a repertoire of skills to be immediately implementable um, to whichever company you work for. And when you do a three-month boot camp, it's a crash course on so many of these skills. So you're basically becoming a generalist, right? And uh, now today, these uh, masters in data science and artificial intelligence offer you to specialize in certain tracks of, do you want to do an advanced machine learning track? or a natural language processing track or an automation track. I think they're quite helpful. And I think we're seeing the boot camp start to move in that space as well, especially with um, nine-month and 12-month part-time programs um, to offer more flexibility and offer more advanced uh, learning. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that's really what we need is well-rounded individuals that not only know how the technology works, but how it can be applied in different ways and thinking outside of the box. That's you know, how we've gotten to where we are. And I think that that's going to be the best way to continue moving in that right direction and leveraging technology for good and making an impact on society. That's right. Getting ready for work 2.0. It's here today and it's here to stay.
Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, hey, I really appreciate you hopping on with me. It's been fantastic, David. Thanks so much, Ben. Really appreciate the time as well. We want to thank everyone for listening to today's podcast brought to you by Nexus IT Group. If you're looking for a new career challenge, let's chat. If you're looking to hire new talent, reach out. Or if you just want to talk about cybersecurity, email us at info at nexusitgroup.com. Until next time, stay safe and stay secure.